Okay, the children are dismissed. I see they're already scooting. We will miss you. You're the best of us. Uh, I'm delighted to be back. Uh, it has uh, always been my pattern as a pastor uh, for the many years that I've been doing it uh, to give January to the associate, to let him run with it and build some momentum. And, uh, and then when that was set and Tim agreed, uh, I thought maybe it'd be a good time to get a knee replaced. Um, and now I'm scratching my head uh, thinking, who thought this was a good idea? Um, I actually blame Craig Jeffrey. He was the one that encouraged me to get it done quickly. And uh, you owe me one. <laughs> so, but I'm delighted to be back, delighted to the Gospel of Luke, very grateful for Tim's handling of the previous chapter. Uh, but here we are with uh, chapter 18, uh, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Uh, many years ago, before I went to seminary, in that little gap, I had three years between graduating college and going to seminary, I fell in with a PCA church. Uh, reading Francis Schaeffer had kind of led me in that direction. And, uh, and my pastor uh, decided that he was going to preach through J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Uh, now, if you think that's a little scandalous that you ought to be preaching the Bible, uh, you haven't read Packer's Knowing God because it is saturated uh, with the Bible, uh, at least a half a dozen re Bible references on every page. Um, but I got a copy of that book and started to read it, and, and I'll tell you, for me, it took me a while to get through it. Uh, it was a hard book for me, and, uh, and I was, you know, young and energetic, and, and uh, I actually put a Bible right next to it, and every time he referred to a verse, I would look up that verse. Uh, I had to do it in paper. It wasn't on a computer or on a phone. Um, but it was a, a, a life-changing experience for me and set me on the track of going to seminary. I would still recommend the book. If you haven't read it, uh, I would say that that would be a wonderful thing for you to accomplish this year, uh, reading Packer's Knowing God. And if you have read it, maybe you'd want to reread it. Uh, but the second chapter of that book is entitled People Who Know Their God. And, and what Packer does is he dives into Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, he looks at their lives and particularly uh, the way that they prayed uh, as a way of explaining people who know their God. And, uh, and he ends up with three or four things. You people who know their God do this. People who know their God think this. Uh, people who know their God uh, employ themselves and view the world uh, in this direction. And uh, I'm not going to outline the whole chapter for you. But I want to read you one of the conclusions. And this conclusion has stuck with me for almost 50 years. And, uh, and it, it haunts me, to tell you the truth. It always hangs over me. But Packer, at the end of the chapter, uh, when he's listing you know, some of the applications of what he's just written, he says, first, uh, we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. Now, he's explained the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. That's a cornerstone of the book. We must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. We must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are 
at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. So, for 50 plus years, I've had hanging over me a sense of that my life as a Christian should be evaluated uh, by how I pray and what goes on in my heart. And that's a humbling experience. That's a humbling sentiment uh, to have hanging over me. I'm pretty good at the physical aspects of showing up, um, but uh, on my own and in private and before the Lord, uh, I'm, I'm not nearly where I ought to be. Uh, so we get to this passage in which prayer is enjoined, it's encouraged, and, uh, and I think that we need to have this sense that we need to learn this. And, and I, I, I would hope um, that in some measure, a good many of us will go home this afternoon and say, how might I change? How might there be a difference made in my life? Do some things need to be altered? Um, how am I to think about this? So, uh, as has been mentioned repeatedly, uh, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, he's going there where he is sure that tragedy awaits him, uh, that he is going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer, uh, be tortured, and be crucified, uh, and be raised from the dead. And on his way there, in this travel narrative is what the scholars call it, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Uh, he wants them to thrive. His aim is that the gospel will be carried to the ends of the earth. And he has to do what he can to get them ready. So in a sense, that's, that's, the, that's the title of the sermon series. If there is to be a title, it's Are You Ready? And, uh, and we're asking the situation here at the church of um, getting ready for a new pastor. Uh, the, the search committee is hard at work. I know that they're listening to a lot of sermons. I know that they're conducting interviews. Uh, but while they're hard at work on that end of it, uh, you and the congregation need to be hard at work on your end of it and uh, getting yourself ready uh, to receive a new pastor, uh, to welcome him. You're going to make some promises. Maybe we'll go over those uh, sometime later uh, in preparation. But you're going to make promises to support him uh, and to submit to him. Uh, so there is a sense in which we're all trying to get ready for that. Um, Following on Tim's sermon last week, uh, the kingdom of God is still in view. Uh, in some ways, the kingdom is always in view. Uh, there's been very much in this gospel regarding the kingdom and one's response to its arrival. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is still coming. Uh, but I, as I was reading this passage this week, I was reminded of uh, earlier passages, especially in chapter 9, which is where we started. We started in chapter 9 last year. And, uh, and right off the bat, Jesus, uh, having been transfigured, having heard Peter's profession of faith, turns himself to Jerusalem. He announces uh, the reason for going to Jerusalem, lets the disciples know ahead of time that, uh, that he is going to be crucified. Uh, but he follows that up immediately with challenges to the disciples to say, you know, we're not messing around here from this point on. It's time to get serious. It's time to look at, at the mirror. It's time to think through what, what it is we're really all about. And in chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And later on in that chapter, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Also in chapter 14, he said, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, uh, he cannot be my disciple. So these rigorous things are put in front of the disciples as they are preparing. And I, and I always want to underscore that Jesus is doing this with the full complement of his compassion in view. He loves the disciples. He really wants what's best for them. He really does want them to be able to thrive, but he's you know, kind of saying to them, if you're half-hearted, you will not thrive. If you're half-hearted, the opposition will be way too difficult. You'll be overrun. You'll be bulldozed by this. So get it set in your brain ahead of time uh, what it's going to have to look like. So when the widow in this passage comes seeking and demanding justice, I want us to see that she is advocating for the values of the kingdom. She's asking for the kingdom of God. The way it's described here is she's asking for justice. Uh, We could well say that she's saying, thy kingdom come. She's wanting the kingdom, the values of the kingdom. And she is also exhibiting the kind of all-in discipleship that Jesus requires. Uh, She will not stop pestering uh, the judge. So with that in mind, uh, let's read uh, these eight verses together. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God, and we believe that it's true. Uh, Okay, so let's just kind of go a little bit through it. Uh, First, the purpose of the parable is stated up front uh, for what they are about to face. The disciples are going to have to pray always. This same idea is later echoed by the apostle. Uh, You can do the cross-referencing. He writes the Romans that they should be constant in prayer. He writes the Ephesians, that they should pray at all times in the Spirit. He writes the Colossians, that they should continue steadfastly in prayer. And and to the Thessalonians, he says that they should pray without ceasing. Uh, So it's a a big idea uh, that occurs not only here, but also throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, Here in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus in chapter 11, is already given instructions in prayer. Uh, That's where he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And he also told them a parable uh, indicating the audacity and the persistence necessary when one prays. Uh, That chapter 11 and this chapter 18 uh, fit very well together. 
later in chapter 21, um, in the week before his crucifixion, uh, he'll turn to his disciples and command them to stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Uh, I think the same thing could be said here, that Jesus is commanding uh, every one of us uh, to pray that we may have strength uh, to stand before him. So that's the first thing. For what they're about to face, they're going to need to pray always. And then secondly, for what they're about to face, they will need not to lose heart. Now, uh, one of the translations says always to pray and not give up. And that, that seems to amplify you know, almost being saying the same thing. But I think it's two different things. Uh, Again, I think that Jesus is concerned uh, for the emotional well-being of his disciples, that they not lose heart. Um, Again, the apostle uses the same words in 2 Corinthians. You know that 2 Corinthians is a chapter about suffering, or it's a book about suffering and about comfort that can be derived in the middle of the suffering. Um, And he says in chapter 4, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Uh, So Paul reflects on the ministry that God has given him as a means by which they do not lose heart. And he says the same thing later on in the chapter, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So I think it's important that we keep these two things in mind uh, as we look at the parable. Uh, that Jesus wants his disciples to pray always, but that he also is concerned that they not be discouraged, that they not be overwhelmed. He doesn't want them to lose heart. Uh, So the details of the parable are graphic. Uh, The details of the parable are graphic. Uh, The purpose of the parable is obvious. The details of the parable are graphic. The judge is a bad man. Uh, He's a terrible guy. Uh, We have all seen TV shows or movies Uh, in which there is an implacably evil judge or sheriff or politician. And if these are well acted, those characters are truly scary uh, because they've got so much power. Uh, Nothing worse could be said about someone than that he neither fears God nor respects man. Uh, Obviously, not to fear God uh, makes him a fool, Uh, But a fool in a position of authority can do a lot of damage. Um, Respecting man, I think, needs a little bit of uh, explanation to this. Uh, It's it's, uh, deeper and more um, uh, persuasive than we would ordinarily explain that. Uh, Other translations say that he has no regard for other men. Um, But what's interesting is that, that the ancient Near Eastern translations, Syriac versions, Arabic versions... Uh, they don't say that he, is, uh, he has no respect for men. Uh, he says, it says that he lacks shame, that he's unashamed. And that's not an, an inappropriate way to describe uh, or to translate that word. Uh, the culture in which Jesus lived was a shame-based culture. Uh, children were taught not only this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing, but more emphatically they were told Uh, this is something of which you can be proud and this is something of which you should be ashamed. And we carry a little bit of that in our culture, but not much. Uh, For them, it was a profound thing. When you've done wrong, you should be ashamed. And and nothing could be worse than to feel no shame 
when you've done something wrong. Um, even worse than that is to feel no shame publicly when people know that you've done something, when people know that you are a bad character. And you say, I don't care what they think. To be unashamed uh, indicates a deep wickedness is what it does. To have no regard for men is to be in a position where no one can shame you, no one can call you into account. So when Jeremiah, when the Lord condemns Israel through Jeremiah in chapter 6, you can look this up, he condemns Israel for their inability to be ashamed. And in a colorful verse he says, they have forgotten how to blush. They don't even know to be ashamed for what they've done. And that's a bad place to be in. So the man is set up as a thoroughly wicked character. Uh, the widow, on the other hand, is a picture of desperation. Uh, she's in the most vulnerable position. She has no one to plead her case, and she has no ability to produce a bribe, which is the only way she's going to be able to move this judge. Uh, I don't need to remind you uh, that widows in the Bible are those who are particularly favored by God. It's important to pay attention to this, uh, certainly if you are a widow, um, but more importantly if you're not a widow or a widower. Uh, it's good to pay attention to the way that God favors those who have lost uh, the resources necessary uh, for their lives. Um, the law in Israel was emphatic. In Exodus 22, uh, Moses told the Israelites, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Uh, the words of the Lord, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So the Lord takes up the cause of the widow. Uh, elsewhere, a curse is pronounced on anyone who would pervert the justice of a widow. And God defines himself in Deuteronomy chapter 10 as God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So God is on the side of the widow. She is emblematic of the people of God, particularly as they struggle and cry out uh, to the Lord for the kingdom to come. Uh, of course, the notion of bribes lies in the background of the parable. The judge, uh, neither caring neither for people or God, is only moved by bribes. And here comes this woman, incapable of a bribe. And so... Uh, she pesters him. It says she bothers him. Uh, one of the commentators that I read said that you, he could imagine him appearing next to the judge when he's in the marketplace, uh, next to the judge when he's in various places of his life and, and uh, constantly badgering him. I need justice against my adversary. I need justice. You need to give it to me. Uh, the characters in the parable are emblematic. The, the judge represents the world as it is. It's corrupt. It's difficult. It's disheartening. It's been called a world of woe and a veil of tears. It is riddled with pain, disappointment, and injustice. Uh, we are led by the advertising industry to view the world very differently. Uh, to know that if we were to buy the right car, uh, or drink the right soda, or, um, you know, purchase, you know, the right service, or even 
get the right medication, that life is going to be sunny and wonderful. Um, in fact, you know, that sets us up for the crushing disappointment of life as it really is. Um, the world as it is would tempt someone to lose heart, uh, would tempt someone to give up. And the judge represents that, represents all of the things that come against you in order to thwart you, in order to drag you down, in order to uh, propel you into losing heart. The widow represents the people of God, lacking resources, longing for justice, praying thy kingdom come. The widow represents you uh, when you are tempted to lose heart. And I do want to say that it's interesting that, uh, you know, again, the widow and the fatherless are favored uh, in the Bible, as are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We've noticed this. Uh, now, there's a flip side to it, of course. You know, the Lord makes Abraham wealthy. Uh, the Lord is on board with uh, certain good-looking people. David's apparently good-looking. So is Bathsheba. So is the Shulamites. You know, so there, there is beauty that is rewarded and wealth is given uh, as a gift. Um, but the people on whom God's favor rests are those who are lacking. And, and if you're not a widow, if you're not an orphan... If you're not poor, crippled, blind, or lame, the only way that you can access that disposition is, is through humility and contrition. You know, the Lord says that I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with a humble and contrite heart. And this is why the confession of sin is so integral to our worship experience. For us to remind ourselves, even if we are in a sweet spot in life, that, that we have spiritual need, and it's pointed, uh, and it's serious, and it is um, constant. So that's the setup of the parable. You know, here's the world as it is. Here is this woman with her persistence, crying out uh, for the kingdom. And uh, for a while, the judge refuses in verse 4. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then we get to the summation of the parable. And I, I, I want you to pay attention to this and notice what's going on. In the summation of the parable, Jesus directs our attention to God himself. He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Well, the unjust judge, this exasperated man, worried that the woman's persistence is going to give him a black eye, says, I will give her justice. And Jesus tells everyone to pay attention to this. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. He says, I will give her justice. Now, of course, it's critical to understand uh, that, the, 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 that God is similar to the judge and that he will also give justice but he's dissimilar to the judge in that he doesn't begrudge answering his people, but he delights to do so. Now, that's something that you got to scratch your head about. And, and this, I would say, is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter this morning. It's Packer's point in that book. Do you know God? Do you know about God? You know, we're all pretty sharp doctrinally. I think the church is really marked by that. I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, in a light way. 
Uh, we uh, heard from uh, Brooke Hempel, who's been conducting a, an assessment of the church, and she said, uh, you know, Carriage Lane really is a place that it's remarkable uh, for its understanding, for its knowledge, uh, for its commitment uh, to biblical convictions. Uh, see, we know about God, but here's the, here's the question that gets thrown in front of you. Do you know God? And, and how are you going to know God but by uh, engaging with him in prayer? As you pray, you get to know God. That's a hard thing because, you know, again, a lot of us, I mean, our experience is going to be, all of us, you know, at certain junctures in my life, I was really in a pinch and I cried out to the Lord. And he either gave me or didn't give me what I wanted. If he didn't give me what, what I wanted, I threw in the towel and said he's really not listening to me. If he did give me what I wanted, and this is kind of remarkable, uh, we forget very readily to be grateful. It's just kind of amazing the way we are. But the, the bigger problem, I think, is, and this happens even to children, you know, they cry out to the Lord and say, I need this thing, and they don't get it. And so, they, so they, they, again, throw in the towel. They lose heart. They give up. Say, I'm not going to pray. I'm not getting what I want. But in fact, what Jesus is saying is, keep after it. Keep after it. Keep praying. And you're going to learn who God is. You're going to find out what he's all about. And you're going you know, to find out that, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz, is a prayer that is never answered. And so it'll make you turn and start praying about something differently. So Jesus, when he wants to encourage his people to pray, tells them about who God is. This is the most important part. Now, I, want, I do want to say uh, that from verses 7 forward, 7 and 8, um, they're hard to understand. The, the biggest, thickest commentary I've got on the Gospel of Luke, it's two volumes, each one of them about that thick. Um, the guy has 12 different understandings of what Jesus is going on, what Jesus is saying here. So it's complicated. It can, it can be taken in different ways, but I'm going to give it to you in a very straightforward way. Uh, in the first part of verse 7, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that God will give the kingdom to those who pray. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The answer to that question is, yes, he will. And the reason he will is because of who he is. And if you, need, and, and if you want to know anything about God, you know, put first on the list that he will certainly give justice to his elect who call to him day and night. Now again, this is a difficult thing. I have a friend of mine who has been subjected to horrific injustice. And ever since I heard of it, you know, T and I have prayed as often as we pray, Lord, give justice to this man and his family. It's been about a year and a half we've been praying that. But this passage comes to mind and we've got to keep praying. We've got to keep praying and not lose heart, not give up. Maybe do something about it. But anyway, we cry out to it. The first thing Jesus wants you to know is that God will certainly give justice to those who call out to him day and night. Uh, in, the, in the second half of that verse, 
I'm going to suggest something a little bit different. It says, will he delay long over them? Um, That word delay is translated almost everywhere else in the New Testament by the word patience. And I think the most illuminating passage um, in the New Testament is Romans 2, 4, uh, where, and and some of you have this verse memorized, at least you'll remember it as soon as I start to read it. Uh, Paul says, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul's point there is that God has forsworn his wrath. He has removed his wrath far from you. He is not executing his judgment against you the way you deserve it. He's postponing his judgment. He's leaving room for what? What is his kindness doing? His kindness is giving you room to repent. So God isn't coming after you quickly uh, when you sin. Rather, he's, he's stepping back and he's giving you room to repent. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now, this ought always to be the case as we reflect on the kindness of God, that it leads us uh, to repentance. So I think that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, and he will continue to be patient with them, giving grace and forgiveness, withholding his wrath so that they can pray. The thing that will thwart prayer more than anything else is a guilty conscience. You know, it's a conscience that says, I I have sinned grievously, and I know that God is not going to hear my prayer. I can remember as a brand new Christian, you know, I did like every other stupid new Christian in the early 70s, went out and bought a painting of Jesus, stuck it up over my bed, Um, and, and, uh, and, and at a certain point, you know, I'd stumbled so badly that I took that painting and turned the face to the wall. I was so ashamed. And that's the hardest time to pray when you're ashamed of yourself. And so Jesus is saying you need to know that God is patient with you. You need to know that you can confess your sin and that God is going to forgive you and he has postponed his wrath. And his kindness leads you not only to repentance, but his kindness leads you to prayer. I've told the story many times. A good friend of mine, you know, came up to me one time and I said, how's it going? He was a deacon in the church. And he said, not so good. And I said, what's the problem? He says, oh, my sin, it's got me by the throat. And as a uh, wise and sensitive pastor, I said, well, you know, the Bible says that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So what's the problem? And he said, well, I, I keep sinning continually. The same thing comes up again and again and again. And I've gotten to the point where I'm firmly convinced that I just don't deserve his grace anymore. And that's when I had to stop being glib and say, might there be a problem in the assumption that you did deserve his grace up till this point? And if you've gotten to the place where you now know that you don't deserve God's grace, you might be right in the place where he wants to give it to you. Right in the place where he wants to invite you in. 
So this is a critical component that Jesus is laying out here for the disciples to consider. He wants them to pray. He wants them not to lose heart. But he's saying in order to do that, in order to do it persistently, you need to know who God is. He will give justice to his elect, and he will be patient with you as you stumble through all the ups and downs of life. You know, we, we have this corrupt vision of what uh, Christian life is. We think that it's a life of innocence. We think it's a life of pure uprightness, and we're not ready for the fact that it, in fact, is a long, slow slog in which we are daily redeemed. Our legacy is not innocence. Our legacy is redemption. Amen? And I do want to say at this point that the foundation of prayer is real faith. But I know, we, know it's always appropriate to kind of take a little bit of a sidestep in any of these passages and say uh, that when Jesus is telling you that God is patient with you and has postponed his wrath, he's saying that to those who have put their faith in Christ. And so, you know, the, the worst thing you could probably try to do is to try to pray energetically if you don't know Christ. And if you haven't admitted your sin and if you haven't put yourself in the place of receiving his grace. So I think it's appropriate to say here that the foundation of prayer is real faith. And that's exactly what Jesus says at the end of this passage, isn't it? You know, will he find faith on the earth? That, that seems like he's almost kind of twisted things around a little bit where, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about prayer. Uh, but in fact, you know, Jesus discussing prayer and discussing tenacity in prayer and discussing the character of God leads you to what does faith look like? And this is, again, Packer's point. We assess ourselves, we do our evaluation on the basis of how do we pray? So the last thing that he says is that God will, in fact, in the first part of verse 8, give justice to them speedily. And, you know, again, that's a tough one. I told you I've been praying for a year and a half for this friend of mine. Doesn't seem too speedy. Uh, some of the commentators will say that, well, you have to throw this into God's time in which one day is a thousand years. That seems to nullify the promise of speediness. Um, but another way that quickly can refer or speedily can another thing it can mean is not time rather but to manner the manner in which God's answers the, 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 the manner in which God answers prayer for justice and for the kingdom is that he will deliver such justice abruptly he will deliver this justice suddenly and you might have thought that it was a long time coming but when it comes, you go, yes, it happened right on time. It happened right when I needed it. The two stories that precede this back in chapter 7, having to do with Noah and Lot, uh, were God moving suddenly and abruptly, intruding into their lives. So I'm, I'm convinced that that's what's going to happen for this friend of mine, is that out of the blue, out of nowhere, Justice is going to come. At least that's what I'm praying for. So that's, that's, the, that's the parable. And Jesus again, you know, says, when I come 
am I going to find that kind of faith being exercised? Am I going to find that kind of energy taking place? Now, I'll wrap it up here. You know, you and I are not, generally speaking, tenacious in prayer and energetic in the pursuit of the kingdom. And I think we ought to be willing to ask ourselves in a spirit of honesty, one sinner to another, right? Remember Steve Brown, the great preacher, used to just say, can we talk? We ought to be willing to ask ourselves some fundamental questions about how, about how the life of faith here at Carriage Lane bears any resemblance to what Jesus has in mind with regard to following him. Let's be honest about that. He's talked about self-denial, hand of the plow, renunciation of the world. And I think that the point here is that weakness in prayer uh, is a sure sign that you don't know God. And so I'm weak in prayer. And maybe I need to set the alarm a little bit earlier. Maybe I need to kind of set the clock to make sure that I'm praying as much as I ought to pray. I'm shamed by Martin Luther's confession. You know, he said that on a, on a non-busy day, he would pray for an hour, but if things were really going to be busy and hectic, he prayed for two or three. Now, I don't even know what that's like. I don't have any imagination for that. Uh, but what Jesus is saying here is that in the, in the, in the tough place that we are, with intensified opposition to the gospel. And I know that as you read the newspapers and read the cultural analysts, you know that the values of the kingdom of God are far from the culture in which we now live. And in the middle of that, I think Jesus is saying you don't need to be afraid. And you don't need to lose heart. God has put his anger far away from you. And he hears you. And you just simply need to keep trusting and be steadfast in prayer. We're not appealing to a disgruntled judge, but to a loving father who's going to vindicate and is going to do so quickly. So I just want to invite all of you to pray. To pray always and not lose heart. I'm going to give you a couple of helpful hints. Uh, number one, I want to suggest that you pray with others. Uh, I don't think that this is primarily uh, an advocacy for private prayer. Uh, there is a certain value that is given in the Bible. Jesus said two or three being gathered together carried a potency. So find someone with whom you can pray. If it's a family, if it's a collection of friends, certainly pray in your small groups. Come join us to pray on Thursday mornings. Secondly, I would say discipline your prayer so that it accords with Jesus' instructions. And I think this is important. Uh, make sure that you begin with worship, adoration, and gratitude. Do not jump to felt needs. Don't jump to the things that are pinching you and saying, Lord, I need help in this regard. Make sure that you begin with worship, with gratitude. Read a psalm. Secondly, make much of the kingdom and its righteousness. Make this the primary focus of your prayer. You know, I've been advocating this little book, Be Thou My Vision. We use it in our Thursday morning prayer meetings. Uh, he's coming out with a new version of it uh, that will have to do with Easter uh, all the way up to Pentecost. 
And it's been helpful because you read these prayers uh, of these old saints that have to do with the kingdom, and they're universal. And you read these say, wow, that was appropriate in the 1500s. It's appropriate for me now. And it doesn't have to do with my felt needs. Now, again, this is still under the rubric of disciplining your prayer. First, make sure you begin with worship. Second, make the kingdom and its righteousness your primary focus. Uh, Third, make sure you confess your sins when you pray. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus wanted his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So always make that a portion of your prayer. And then lastly, I would say leave to last the more personal concerns of health, finances, and the rest. All those things are legit. You do need to pray for those things. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. He cares for you. All of that is good. Uh, But make sure that they don't occupy first place uh, when you pray. So those are my helpful hints. Let's pray. Let's commit ourselves to praying, especially in this season of waiting for a pastor. And let's remember that no one ever prayed more tenaciously for justice for the kingdom uh, than Jesus himself. Uh, No one was ever more sorely pressed and more fully tempted to lose heart uh, than Jesus himself. And no one was more fully and abruptly vindicated uh, than Jesus when he burst forth from the tomb. Uh, We're moving towards Easter. It's coming quick. Uh, We have a great privilege of entering into that season um, and deepening faith and making it something that we've only uh, in the past dreamed of. God really wants to do that for you. Do you believe that? God really wants to take your faith uh, to another level. And I don't mean to be hierarchical in it, but don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep praying.